0: I hope you guys weren't worried. You weren't getting a Dharma talk either. (laughs) It reminds me of the early days here, the three-month retreat. They had these teachers who taught all 12 weeks, which was pretty hard work. So in the middle, they'd have a week, and it was called Independence Week. And basically, the teachers left for a week. (laughs) Uh, That didn't last. (laughs) But I was sitting in the staff dining room with uh, my colleagues and uh, just enjoying each other's company. I'm sure sometimes you hear us laugh in there when you uh, walk by. I hope you feel mudita and that you, you know, get to share some of the joy that we have in just being together. Dharma buddies being together, it's a good thing. A lot of Dharma buddies here tonight. <laughs> anyway, sorry about the um, equanimity, pra- or not the equanimity, the Brahma Vihara practice. Uh, there was a little confusion about scheduling, so we'll see what happens. You got a little taste of what it's like to practice in Asia, like when I practiced in Burma. Like things changed all the time, last minute. One thing was supposed to happen, then something else would happen. And uh, it teaches you flexibility. <laughs> so, after Tuareg's talk last night on Damana, I went in and after her talk, and I said, Well, after that talk, there's only one direction to go <laughs> back towards slogging it out carrying those books one by one. So we're going to go back to slogging it out here by talking about aversion tonight. Really our practice is a mix of slogging it out and not slogging it out. (laughs) So as a reminder, I'm talking about these three uh, major challenges in, um, Our human lives, these challenges of craving or desire, aversion, and uh, confusion and delusion. And just a reminder too, and you already know this, I guess, you should know this if you've been paying attention, that we have to deal with all three of them. But knowing which one we specialize in can sometimes be helpful, not to create an identity around that, but to... Understand our tendencies. Understand what might be helpful for us in practice. And if, you, if calling it a personality type doesn't really work for you, call it a primary coping strategy or um, a control strategy or a protection, primary protection for living in this dizzying, scandalous world of ceaseless change. We're just trying to figure out how we can cope. And the greed types aren't necessarily greedy. It's just that their primary strategy for living in this dizzy world, dizzying world, is um, to move, see what they like, and move towards it. And the aversive types aren't mean. It's just their primary strategy is to move away from what they don't like. And the confused types aren't stupid. <laughs> well, that's the worry, right, when you hear that type or when you are that type. Their primary method is just to get lost in confusion and skeptical thinking and doubt. But we all have all three of these strategies for dealing with this world. You might have also noticed that they're three of the five hindrances. They're also part of the Third foundation of mindfulness. The first foundation being the body, the second foundation feeling tone, and the third foundation is um, knowing the mind and the heart. And the beginning instructions in the sutra. It's very short, but the first um, part of that third foundation says: know when the mind is imbued with craving, and know a mind free of craving. Know when the mind heart is imbued with aversion. Know a mind-heart that is free of aversion. Know the mind and heart that are imbued with uh, delusion and know the mind and heart free of delusion. And then there's a bit more related to concentration and scatteredness and a few other things. But it begins, and I would say the central part of that third foundation is these three um, strategies, our challenges that we have in our practice, both to know when they're present and to know when they're absent, when we're free of them. So we step into the unknown by considering whether these strategies actually serve us and being willing to try something different. And hopefully the talks that I'm giving will kind of give us ideas about how we might do that, how we might try something different. It's interesting that each um, one of these types, or each one of these energies, has uh, primary tasks. So for greed and craving, the primary task is learning renunciation, It's good to contemplate old age and death, and um, it's good to have very simple and even unpleasant surroundings to help you become disenchanted. For the aversive types, the primary task is softening. Metta is considered a a good meditation for that, and... um, Pleasant surroundings are recommended in order to help with that softening. And for the confused types, the primary task is land in the body, come down out of the mind, land in the body, get simple. Noting is a helpful practice. Breath meditation is a helpful practice. And also pleasant surroundings are recommended in order to help with the landing. The commentaries give very funny descriptions of each type and what they're like. So tonight we're talking about an aversive type. I'm an aversive type, so I don't mind making fun of aversive types. (laughs) Aversive types stomp. They walk stomping. Uh, They sweep briskly back and forth. And they get up with a scowl on their face. (laughs) (laughs) So if we come into the hall as an aversive type, we're immediately scanning for problems. What's wrong here? Who do I want to move away from? You know, where do I want to be so that I don't have to deal with anything unpleasant in the hall? The greed types, they come in, and they, and they immediately notice how beautiful the sun is when it lands over there at this time of the day. So I'm going to sit over there right now. <laughs> And the confused types, they go back and forth. They come in and they're like, oh, should I sit here or should I sit there? Should I sit on my cushion or should I sit in a chair? Should I move away from that annoying person or should I stay where I am? Aversive types see what's wrong in um, situations and they easily overlook what's beautiful. Three types see everything in good in a situation and immediately and tend to overlook the drawbacks. Aversive types usually say no to something new, so I see that myself when like something new is proposed, some change, something different. My immediate reaction is no. <laughs> knowing that, knowing that that's how you know an aversive type like me responds. I've learned. Sometimes not even to say the no, but I still say the no often. But then I relax and I go, let me think about that and get back to you. So I take time to like consider whether that no is actually um, a good response. And so for greed types, the immediate response is yes. <laughs> but it can also be helpful to say yes, well, yeah, but let me think about that a little bit and you know, to pause and to step back. So this is what I mean about like it can be helpful to know which type you are because it can help you manage yourself. <laughs> and confused types um, who sometimes get forgotten uh, need to drop down out of their heads enough to know what they want to feel. Anyway, back to aversion. I specialize in aversion. I know it very well. Um, So aversion can arise in the face of unpleasant experiences, and it presents in many, many forms. Fury, fear, terror, panic, hatred, ill will, disgust, judgment, anger, annoyance, and sadness, to name just a few. One time in my practice, a number of years ago, I heard a a teacher in Burma describe um, ten kinds of equanimity. And I heard that another teacher could talk about 20 kinds of silence. I asked myself, I said, what list could I talk about? And I said, well, fear. (laughs) So I made a list just for fun of the kinds of fear that I had experienced in meditation. I started out with 13 and I ended with 24. And then when I finished with fear, I got interested in anger. So I made a list of all the different kinds of anger I'd worked with in my meditation practice. I also came up with 24. Interesting, the same number. Things such as killer rage, bulldozer rage. You know that one? It's like, "Mm." (laughs) I'm just (laughs) going to, Then there was powerless fury, frustration, all the way through to just mild annoyance. Or even sometimes aversion is just that little, uh, it's just, uh, right? It's not even emotion yet, it's just backing off. I talked about this at one retreat I taught, and at the end, one of my students told me that his list of types of anger um, made it up to 46. And I congratulated him. <laughs> It's not to make myself out to be an angry person or, or a fearful person, but it's, it's intimacy with this being. And it's actually liberating to know that I'm capable of all of those mind states. It, it makes it easier to connect with other humans and to understand and I also know they're not so personal. That's why I don't mind telling you about them. It's just conditioning. It's not who I am. It's my responsibility to deal, but it's not who I am. Ramdas said that in meditation we become a connoisseur of our neuroses. <laughs> and it's true, we get to know them really well. And again, like we sometimes think that's such a heavy thing, but to me, it brings lightness, because we don't have to spend all our energy trying to deny our humanity. It frees up a lot of energy. And it opens our hearts. It helps us um, mellow out any tendencies towards arrogance and allows us to really connect with others through our shared humanity. Sometimes I like to tell a story about the first time that I, well, the second time I traveled to Burma, the first time I was, I'm 27, that was... uh, And then the next time I went back, uh, I was close to 40. I decided that meditation in the United States felt kind of easy because there's so much control over our environment and I wanted to be challenged and stretched. So I went to do a three-week retreat in the Sagain Hills region of Burma that I've talked about some. And I have a very sensitive body. It's very easily impacted by the environment. So I had a little bit of trepidation, but I was ready. I wanted to do this. So I got to the monastery, and I was escorted to my own little individual hut called a cootie, my own little cootie. And as soon as I went into my little cootie, I noticed that it smelled like mothballs, which I'm allergic to. They were in a big cabinet, so um, we moved the big cabinet to the porch, and then I pulled out my bag while I was doing that. And then... uh, all the um, fires in the village, all the smoke came right up to this kuti. So it was bad for my asthma. Then I went to the meditation hall where they um, had just painted, a new meditation hall, and they just painted all the floors with oil-based cement paint, which I'm also allergic to. (laughs) (laughs) And then that night, they had an all-night celebration because it was a massive ordination of young men. And so... As in the story I read the other day, when there's a, a celebration, they have big, very, very loud um, uh, loudspeakers, very blasting all night, which includes, um, in Burma it includes Burmese music, but it also includes American music with Burmese lyrics because they weren't allowed to have English lyrics because the government forbid them. So we'd have, these would be going on all day, different days. Um, My favorite was country western days in Burmese. (laughs) (laughs) It was, uh, anyway, so that went on all night. And then people give impromptu dharma talks in the middle of the night too. And um, so I I experienced a bit of panic. I was like, I am not going to live through this experience. I was really panicked. It was just way overwhelming for my system. And then on top of it, um, there wasn't selling internet service then, so my return trip home involved five airplane flights, and I wasn't going to be able to change them. So I was stuck for three weeks. And um, with no alternative, I, I just turned and said to myself, if this entire three-week experience is about learning about panic, Sign me up. So I got interested in panic. It's like, what is this experience? How does it manifest? How do I find some freedom with this experience, right? I started to notice that panic, it it arises in waves. It's like a big wave comes up and then it'll go down. And then a wave will come up, and then it'll go down. So I started surf, learning how to surf the waves. I called it. So I'd just be like, oh, "Wow, there's that wave! Woo, woo!" And um, of course, lots of catastrophic thoughts. So I kind of, I kind of wore them out, and I learned like, "Oh, I don't have to take those thoughts so seriously. They're just a manifestation of panic, right?" unpleasant, right? Unpleasant stimuli. That's part of panic. It's just unpleasant in the body. So I was like, can I increase my ability to be with this unpleasantness, to hold it? So I worked with that. And um even when I could adding in some kindness and care towards myself. And it was a really good retreat. I learned so much, and by learning how to work with and how to befriend panic, it no longer had control over me, so my options were much increased because I did not have to um, keep panic at bay. So that's an example of aversion and how we can um, turn towards it and, and use it in service of our liberation, you could say. Let it teach us, let our encounter with it teach us how we can be free without having to get rid of anything. So aversion pushes away or avoids what is happening. And its basic delusion is that this experience is to blame for my unhappiness, and if I get rid of it, my problems will be solved forever. Aversion tells us that we can't tolerate what's going on, so we have to get rid of it. This is what Mara whispers to us. You can't. This, you have to get rid of it. Also, an aversive mind state, another one of its delusions is that this unbearable experience is going to last forever. So, therefore, we must eliminate it. Aversion, like all afflictive mind states, is wholeheartedly self-centered. Its job is to take care of me. And that is central when aversion is strong. It's protective because it upholds the fantasy that we can control the world around us and within us. It tries to shield us from the truth that unpleasant experiences arise, whether we want them to or not, and at times we have to bear them, whether we want to or not. So it gives the illusion of control. If I hate this thing enough, it will go away. That's the secret, what it's telling you back there (laughs) While while we're busy hating whatever it is or being angry at whatever it is or having ill will. So we move towards it to really get to know it intimately. One time I told a group, I like hatred. And they kind of were shocked. (laughs) They were like, huh? I'm not saying that I want to cultivate hatred, but we have to admit to ourselves that we like aversion. Or we partly like aversion. Hatred is really protective. It's hard. It shields the heart. Hatred says, I'm invulnerable. You can't get to me. We like that aversive mind states uh, shield the heart in this way. However, (laughs) we pay such a high, high price, right, for that that protection—that invulner— the illusion of invulnerability. Anyway, but there is some actual truth to it. we and the the price is. Stress, because it's stressful to do that, and alienation—alienation alienation from life. It's lonely behind that wall. So we get motivated to to um, look deeper and to consider alternatives besides for aversion as a way to deal with the unpleasantness of life, the unpleasant experiences of life. So the instructions for um, being with aversion are pretty much the same as the instructions for being with craving. (laughs) Sorry, no new and improved instructions to offer tonight. (laughs) But as with craving, um, when aversion is really strong and it's going to overwhelm us, or cause us to commit uh, unethical, unhelpful, or harming actions, then we, um, we uh, find some way to contain it, right? If it's, if it's something that we're just sitting here and is overwhelming us, we, we stand up, we look out the window, we go for a walk, we do uh, things to bring us out of the experience and help us regain stability. If we're seeing another yogi who is doing things in an incorrect manner, and we feel like we want to write them a note, we restrain from that. We we hold ourselves back. We use even you know we might have to use some pretty like strong energy. Like no, I am not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. So there's ways that we move away from aversion. We contain aversion. All of that um, when. it's overwhelming. Sometimes it's really good to have our exit strategy, like to know what it is, because when aversion is overwhelming, um, it can be hard to think clearly. So like knowing for yourself when I'm overwhelmed with an emotion or aversion in this case, what helps me um, get out of it so I have my list ready. In my early practice, I for many years um, had to work a lot with, with fear and a certain kind of fear that was... I was very afraid of and the first thing I had to do was learn how to get out of it and I actually made a list of things I had it posted in my house a list of things I could do if that fear started to overwhelm me so I would know how to get out of it my favorite was cleaning the house because um, not only did I get out of the fear I got a clean house out of it so that was good There was a question this morning, like, how do you know when you investigate these kinds of um, mind states that arise, afflictive mind states, and when do you just put it aside and um, come back to your anchor? I kind of like that Tweri didn't answer it, Um, but I'm going to give a couple of hints, So when other times when aversion calls our attention, we're sitting here minding our business and something happens and we find ourselves in an our aversive mind state. And we have the energy and we have the interest. We can turn towards it to really understand what is this. So how does it present in the body? Are there emo- um. I know this is a review, but it's always good to review. So where do we feel it in the body? Maybe if it's anger, there's a clenching here, right? Or if it's fear, maybe there's a kind of shakiness. What? Um, how does this energy present in the mind? Maybe what kinds of stories it tells? Oh, yeah, anger, like mm, self-righteous stories or vengeance stories sometimes naming them like that we don't care about what the content of this is that's not actually at at all our exploration the content of the aversion we want to understand the mind state of aversion but sometimes like kind of the categories of thoughts can help us to understand more deeply to catch the thoughts before they take off too far <laughs> We notice, right, that the thoughts actually feed the emotion and increase it, right? So we, we um, when we notice we're caught in the story, we, we drop it and come to the body. What's happening in the body? It helps us be with this mind state without getting overwhelmed. And it also offers, like, uh, the, the opportunity for the mind state to unbind itself, for the aversion to unbind itself. Sometimes, um, sometimes it just sticks around for a long time and really rips, and, and that's your experience. But other times um, it, it might be layers. So we think that what we feel is anger, but then we see, oh, yeah, no, what, what it is is it's hurt. And then maybe under that we feel, oh, it's that shakiness of powerlessness, right? So, so just being with it, it uh, sometimes reveals like layers of what's, what's fueling what. so we so we, we we soften into the experience aversion has sharp edges it's it's hard and so we see can i just soften into this experience a little bit can i be kind with it and then we notice what happens when mindfulness meets aversion what happens to the aversion You don't have to do anything. You just see what happens. So sometimes when mindfulness meets aversion, it just pops. It's like gone. You don't have to go back and find that aversion and bring it back and investigate it. No, this is an insight, right? Oh, sometimes when mindfulness is strong, it just cuts right through that mind state. Pops it. Pops the bubble, the trance. So we try to give it some space to be. I remember one time I was teaching, um, and the student was was like, I've tried this with anger, I've tried that with anger, and I just, you know, it's, don't know what to do. And he said, Have you tried giving it space? this was before a meditation afterwards he was like yeah that <laughs> like that's all it wanted it wanted space i even think sometimes for me it's like increasing the space of my of my rib cage of my of my of my heart area my of my you know torso just to allow its space to be there with mindfulness And the unbinding isn't really our business. (laughs) It's the power of mindfulness and the power of awareness that unbind things. Hmm. Hmm. hmm We can also understand um, Vedana, the second foundation of mindfulness, understand uh, the chain of conditioning, right? So we have this sense experience, let's say it's um, an unpleasant sound, a sound that we experience as unpleasant, the sound is innocent, but the the sound lands on us as, as unpleasant, and then we're, we're averse. We don't want it to continue. We're angry at where the sound comes from, whatever the story happens to be. So we can get, start to get interested in this chain of conditioning. There's an actual hearing. There's the unpleasantness. And there's a, um, aversion against it. And we can move our attention between these three components just to see, is there a gap is it at first when we're exploring this, unpleasant aversion, married, there's not a bit of space there. They seem to us like the same thing sometimes, like unpleasantness and aversion seem like the same thing. But when we start moving our mind around, there can be the introduction of a little space in there. Oh. Unpleasantness Doesn't have to automatically be followed by aversion. That is a real game changer when we see that. Pleasantness doesn't have to be followed by craving. And again, we're not trying to make a gap, we're just moving the tension around, exploring, seeing what happens. the mind learns. The heart learns. And then, and then the heart and mind consider, maybe we can just stop with it's unpleasant. You know, like all that extra drama about that person making that noise and what's wrong with them and how they shouldn't be doing it, and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we don't have to do that. That's stepping into the unknown that Tuari was talking about last night. It doesn't have to be so esoteric. The known is it's unpleasant and you feel aversion. <laughs> but stepping into the unknown might be, oh, it's unpleasant. Oh, okay, this is unpleasant, unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can tolerate unpleasant. Just let it be. It's all right. It happens. Life's like that sometimes. We get simpler. <laughs> really, I think in practice, that's one thing that happens is we get so much simpler. we're so complex, right? So much strategizing and, and wanting and not wanting and uh, managing and thinking and this and that and everything. Over time, we just get a little bit simpler about life. More ordinary, it's very nice. I like to meditate outside. I pretty much um, meditate outside every day when I'm home, especially all four seasons. And I and I love to um, sit outside and just notice my um, relationship to the sense experience that is happening. Thunderstorms are really fun. Just the sound and the wind, you know, the sound of the wind and the rain, the sound of it and the feeling of it on my face. And Blizzards are also quite good for sitting outside. You know, we have these thoughts that we shouldn't be out in the rain, but it's, that's our thinking minds, so like, why not? <laughs> Maybe it's um, okay to get wet. Maybe it's okay to sit outside in the middle of a blizzard. I I, I do make sure I don't get hypothermia. (laughs) You know, you use your wisdom. But blizzards are just, it's like, how does my system brace against the cold or against the stinging on the face or against the fear, right? It's like, is there a bracing that happens? I'm so curious about that. And then it's, does that bracing have to happen? You know, that bracing is a form of aversion, so, is there a way that we can rest in whatever life is offering us in this moment, and when you're outside, you don't have a lot of control that's why I like meditating outside There's a teacher that I like a lot as uh, for writing. her name is susan Murphy she's an Australian teacher and um She talks about how in um, improv theater you never say no to what somebody lobs at you because if you say no, you you end the sketch. So if somebody, you know, in improv people like spontaneously say something to the other actors and then the other actors have to take that, right? And she said that the rule is you have to say yes to all offers that get lobbed at you and then you can work with it right but first you have to join with it and take what is offered to you so she says say yes to all offers and i just like that little mantra and it's great for the aversive types it's like say yes to all offers instead of no can we be open to whatever this life offers us So as humans, um, we are going to experience all kinds of unpleasantness from the subtle to the very intense. Um, And if aversion is our only option, it's going to be a hard ride. So what we're trying to do is see if we can expand um, how much of life is acceptable to us. When I first started meditating, I'd say that about 95% was unacceptable. (laughs) Say yes to all offers, right? And as our limits grow and, and what's acceptable grows, we find that we're less restless and we're less at p- and we're more at peace because we don't have to expend our energy in avoiding unpleasantness. Now, of course, if unpleasantness arises, you have a headache, you do take um, a pain reliever. And if you need antidepressants, you take them, um, and we don't peg our happiness on avoiding unpleasantness. There's a story from Suzuki Roshi um, from a book. I think it's called something about a, some corner of the world. I can't remember the exact title. It says, on the fourth day of sesshin, a meditation um, session, our retreat, on the fourth day of Seishin, we sat with our painful legs, aching backs, hopes, and doubts about whether it was worth it. Suzuki Roshi began his talk by saying slowly, the problems you are now experiencing will go away, we were sure he was going to say. We'll continue for the rest of your life, he concluded. <laughs> <laughs> say yes to all offers (laughs) there's a kind of surrender we like that because there's a kind of surrender that happens when we hear that right It it just kind of pops our delusion that somehow we think we're going to get rid of the unpleasantness of life and it helps us put our energy where it's actually useful not in trying to get rid of what's unpleasant, but in establishing a relationship of accommodation, of space, of peace with these parts of life. So the Buddha said in the third foundation of mindfulness, to notice when the heart-mind is imbued with aversion and to notice when the heart-mind is free of aversion. So let's not skip the second part, right? So even um, if it's momentary, first of all, just free of aversion in general, but then free of aversion when unpleasantness is around, that's extra credit. That's even better. So there's a pain in our shoulder, right? And there are just a few moments, perhaps, where we can just let it be. There's no, like, ah, hating, pushing away, trying to get rid of it. It's just like, oh, this is the way it is right now. That's a heart-mind free of aversion. And that's a big paradigm shift. Responding to unpleasantness without aversion is connecting with the unknown. So we're not meditating to confirm what we know, but rather to disrupt what we know. The known is our usual strategies for dealing with this world, and most of them don't work. The unknown lets in new and fresh possibilities. The unknown is maybe my heart can be wide enough to hold this unpleasantness with softness, with kindness, free of aversion. Maybe it's only a second, two seconds, but those are powerful moments and they build on each other. As I said, metta meditation is really great for those who have a lot of aversion. It's great for all of us, actually, but especially um, uh, prescribed for those who have a lot of aversion. In my early practice, I did not like metta meditation at all. In fact, I disliked it. In fact, when it was offered in the hall, I did not come because... I disliked it so much. It was so far from the state of my mind and my heart that I just I couldn't even deal with it because it, my heart was filled with so much aversion. When I think of my first long retreat, that's all I remember is aversion. <laughs> It was pretty constant. I would go into my meetings with my teacher and be like, well, you know, right now it's been a lot of anger and then some sadness. And then I'd go into the next meeting, well, it's been a lot of sadness with a little bit of anger. And this went on for weeks and weeks. And yet, somehow, um, I knew it was freeing. It felt like I was getting to know myself, maybe for the first time. And that intimacy and that lack of... the taking down the walls within my own heart were worth it, were worth hanging out with anger and sadness week after week. Eventually it changed. Anyway, I wouldn't come to the metta meditations for eight years. And then finally I was suffering so much, and I went to my teacher, and I'm like, what can I do? I'm suffering so much. It doesn't seem to be changing a lot. You know, What can I do? And he said, do a metta retreat. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> Anything else. <laughs> but I was so desperate. Uh, that I did, I signed up for two months of metta here. And it was absolutely the best thing I could have done because it helped me finally start to learn to soften. And at the same time as metta like, teaches us to soften, it also makes us strong. It's just this great combo of... Um, strength and flexibility and softness. And then um, I dropped into deeper suffering, which was what I needed to do to move forward. It, came, it made me strong enough to be able to do that. So while we're dealing with all of this aversion, um, the Vasudhi Maga, the... Uh, the commentaries talks about, like I said, about the different environments that are good for the different types. So the aversive types, it's very detailed. They should have sheets made of the finest silk, <laughs> the most deliciously well-seasoned food served in beautiful bowls. Their The path to their hut should have flowers on each side. Um, their servants should be handsome, <laughs> it goes on and on, but um, at least it's some consolation for us aversive types, right? Because like, and you know, the the aversive types in some ways suffer the most. Um, obviously, so all three types are definitely suffering, but again, it's just to help us. Um, Maybe start to trust the world a little bit more. The aversive types aren't big on trust. Maybe we can, yeah, start to soften into the world and land here with some trust in the beauty. So I have a few minutes to talk about a couple of kinds of aversion that have arisen in our discussions. Let's talk first about resistance. That's a form of aversion, right? So you're going along, things are going well, and then um, all of a sudden your heart just goes, I'm done with this. Like, it just closes up and your mind just goes, We are gonna just chatter away. That's what we're gonna do now, right? And um and you're just like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this. And um that sometimes we call resistance, right? It's just like, ah oh, oh. um it sometimes follows periods of, of deeper practice Periods where maybe we open to something, or periods where we feel settled and quiet. And um, I have a high respect for resistance. I don't, I don't see it as so bad. It's just our our protective instinct. It's really the heart, the mar- mind, and heart just backing off a little bit and going, "Was that a good idea?" <laughs> Basically, it's like, "What did you just do?" <laughs> Is that a good idea? Am I safe? Really, is what the heart is trying to figure out. And it does that by kind of backing off, taking a little bit of a vacation from going deeper. And then at other times, um, the heart wants to risk. It wants to be here in this wild universe with all its ups and downs and joys and sorrow. It's willing to step into the unknown a little bit, let go of our usual landmarks, curious, engaged. And these two kind of, they feed each other. The resistance feeds the, um, uh, gives the support that allows the the mind and heart to open and and, um, explore. And then that exploring um, just brings up the protection, the protective backing off. And they're, they kind of, on some level, for many of us, they kind of go back and forth. Maybe in one sitting, maybe in one year, <laughs> or several years at a time. <laughs> I've gone through periods in my practice where it's like really calm and all great for like you know a few years or something, and then, and then something happens, and it's like oh, it's more turbulent. There's more happening and coming up. That's okay. That's the that's the cycles because then after we, we we meet, whatever this is, however the resistance um, shows up, then then we go deeper into more quiet. We can learn to trust all of that. We learn um, to respect our heart and not to boss it around. We love to boss our heart around, to tell it what it should and shouldn't do, how it should and shouldn't feel, when it should be open, which is always preferably and um, ah, the heart gets a little um, doesn't like that so much it's like wait a moment (laughs) so we learn to respect the heart to listen to it to allow and to let it explore at its own pace We find that that works better. <laughs> we find, um, as we're able to work more with aversion, that we can start to play with it a little bit. That we don't take it quite so seriously that there are holes poked in its opaqueness and we can kind of see through it. One retreat I did a few years ago, um, I was doing chanting, so I would chant every morning um, around 7.30. And once a week, the the, um, crew that took care of the grounds would come and they would uh, rev up their leaf blowers right under my window, right at that time. It was where they like to start their work, and um, (laughs) I'm not a big fan of leaf blowers, Uh, so I I knew that. I knew that this was potentially um, suffering, that the situation had the potential for a lot of suffering. So I got really interested in it, and I decided that I would play Aikido with it. So what I did was I joined with the sound, right? Instead of resisting it, I said yes. And I joined with the sound of the leaf blowers. And then um, I learned that I could actually chant harmonizing with the sound of the leaf blowers. (laughs) We don't have to oppose what we don't like. We can figure out how to cooperate with this universe. Somebody called um, equanimity uh, wholehearted cooperation with the unavoidable. (laughs) Wholehearted unlimited cooperation with the unavoidable. Something like that. That was fun. (laughs) We can have fun with these crazy, crazy minds. They're pretty crazy, aren't they? We can have a, they're absurd actually. So we can have an appreciation for absurdity. I found a quote earlier today. I just, of those who practice, this was in the Sun magazine, of those who practice meditation, some give up because trying to keep still the mind is futile and absurd. Others continue meditating because Trying to still the mind is futile and absurd, but they have a taste for absurdity. (laughs) Hmm. Some books on meditation imply that you'll quickly stumble upon inner peacefulness. Actually, the precise opposite is true. You may think you're a fairly calm-centered person, but the minute you cross your legs and attempt to count your breaths... You'll discover that there's an out of control 2 AM disco inside of you. In fact, two discos, each playing separate songs at ear splitting volume, each filled with frantic dancers and mismatched polyester. <laughs> if we can't laugh, we're in trouble. <laughs> Humor's supposed to be good for aversive types. Learning how to laugh at it all. Well, I didn't get to boredom, sorry. <laughs> Maybe some other time. Boredom's also quite interesting. One meditation master said, meditation is boring, boring, boring. Sometimes it's like that. Can we meet boredom? Boredom's kind of, I guess I am getting to boredom. Boredom is, is <laughs> it's, it's actually, if you look closely, there's some aversion or craving there. It's actually an afflictive mind state. Check it out. Check it out. See if you can get interested in boredom. So I would say that we know that our practice is mature when we stop complaining about life. <laughs> Hear that it was something like, Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Did I get that right? (laughs) Uh, It's a high bar. (laughs) Uh, How about we complain less about life? The Tibetan Buddhist master, Anam Thubten, who I like a lot, I like reading his stuff, says that freedom is the end of whining. (laughs) There's a Zen Buddhist story that describes a disciple who, seeking peace, approaches a master named Sono. She instructs him whatever happens, to say, thanks for everything, I have no complaints whatsoever. Say yes to all offers. Thanks for everything, I have no complaints whatsoever. And as we tame aversive mind states, we increasingly live from this receptive space of no complaints whatsoever. I'm going to end with a poem from Mary Sarton let's just close our eyes and listen to it from a kind of meditative space if you're not already sitting that way (laughs) the Phoebe sits on her nest hour after hour day after day waiting for life to burst forth from under her warmth. Can I weave a nest for silence, weave it out of listening, listening, layer upon layer? But one must first become small, nothing but a presence, attentive as a nesting bird, proffering no slightest wish, no tender of a wish toward anything that might happen, or be given only the warm, faithful waiting contained in one's smallness beyond the question the silence before the answer the silence So, if anything resonated for you, one or two things, feel free to bookmark those. And then let the rest of the words float away, settling back into simplicity, silence.